Do you know what time it is? It's that time again with Cindy Gern, who has the latest news about employment trends, current opportunities, and innovative strategies for managing a career on WERA 96.7 FM in Arlington, Virginia. Welcome to Cracking the AI Code Show, where we deconstruct world-class AI experts and learn how to get into data science and machine learning to address the future of the workforce. Not a day passes without hearing about another artificial intelligence application. Google, Amazon, and other companies like Alibaba are introducing new AI technologies every single day. I'm sure most of you heard at Google I.O. yesterday the hype around newer AI technologies. Now, this show will separate the hype and hysteria of AI from reality to better prepare ourselves for the jobs of tomorrow. Today we have with us Princess Alia Pandolfi, the Executive Director of Kashmir World Foundation, a non-profit that develops drone technologies and uses their data and artificial intelligence applications for, believe it or not, protecting the wildlife. Welcome, Princess Alia. Thank you so much for having me on your show, Swathi. You're very welcome. So I wanted to start off by understanding a little bit about what I call the origin story, if you don't mind. What did you go to school to? And just tell us um, the steps you took to enter into the world of artificial intelligence. Well, surprisingly, my background is not at all in technology. I, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> I actually went to school and I didn't know what I wanted to do, but mm -hmm. I ended up getting a degree in business management. Mm -hmm. um, and my early part of life or my first half of my life um, was in real estate and real estate development. Mm -hmm. But my goal was to retire at 30. Wow, that's a lofty <laughs> goal. <laughs> Which I did. Oh, wonderful. So, so, so you met your goal. <laughs> I did. Um, and honestly, I did not know what I was going to do, but I knew whatever it was had to be something I was going to be obsessively passionate about. Mm -hmm. And um, I met my husband because of my cat. Mm -hmm. So to me, that was the biggest sign that I am going to dedicate the rest of my life to helping animals, especially endangered species. Mm -hmm. And as I started looking at and understanding how different types of nonprofit organizations are applying technology, um, I realized very quickly that there was almost very limited to no technology that was being implied for whether you're learning about um, different um, environments and mm -hmm. the species that live within that and mm -hmm. or um, mostly importantly for um, the protection of endangered species because of the rhino poaching crisis and elephant poaching crisis, tigers, and all kinds of animals have been exploited for, for a very long time. But now we're getting to a place where we do have to care about the species mm -hmm. that are not in abundance as they used to be. Mm -hmm. So I started looking at alternative, alternative ways of being able to help understand mm -hmm. as well as apply technology to protecting different endangered species. And fortunately, my husband's a chemical physicist and he's been working with drones for a very long time. So he would expose me to a variety of different technologies, including drones and artificial intelligence. And I'm a very curious person myself. So when I looked at a drone, 
and I wanted to use drones to help find poachers in the African bush, I very quickly understood that it was not going to be possible with a camera. Mm -hmm. And it was also not possible with a human watching a video. Mm -hmm. And I knew that it has to be a very fast processing capability of a system to be able to analyze all situations and Mm -hmm. say, okay, you know, this is a ranger, this is a tourist, this is the military. Mm -hmm. And um, when I take out all those factors, these have to be poachers in the bush. Mm -hmm. They're carrying weapons. What types of weapons are they carrying? And have the ability to process that within seconds and then provide um, a map and a way for the closest rangers to find those poachers and stop them before they killed the animals. So my first project actually was an international challenge called the Wildlife Conservation UAV Challenge. And it was a few different goals. Number one goal was to develop a technology drone specifically with embedded systems that allowed onboard data processing. Mm -hmm. So most drones even now are only capable of processing data after you've recorded it. However, when I started the project in 2013, I was like, no, I don't want that because we can't wait to get that data back and find those poachers. So we need to be able to process that information on board the aircraft and um, be able to allow the rangers on the ground to make the decision of um, reprimanding and and being able to stop the poachers. So that's kind of how I got started into it. Um, So that's interesting. Sorry to interrupt, but I don't often see non-technologists, especially like you were in the field of real estate, Um, And talk to me a little bit about what are the tangible steps you took to get into the world of technology. I know everybody's curious, but sometimes they're challenged with understanding what are the practical steps to follow to get into the world of technology, especially coming from something as diverse as real estate. Um, I think the number one, the number one thing I would think is you have to be passionate about it. And I think regardless of what it is that you're trying to accomplish. Mm -hmm. Um, If you are passionate, you're willing to learn something new. Mm -hmm. It's not scary. It's not hard. It's challenging. Mm -hmm. And I think most people that um, want to accomplish something in life, they like that feel of a challenge. Mm -hmm. And for me, this was a challenge. This was a challenge that was far beyond the reward that I could get because the reward was I've helped made a difference Mm -hmm. in helping save an X number of animals, right? Mm -hmm. So for me, it was all about, well, how can I accomplish that? And if that means learning certain skills, I'm not going to stand back because I didn't take a class in college or Mm -hmm. because I didn't have that background. I'm going to find a way to make this happen. And um, I was able to utilize like a lot of my personal skills of business and being able to find experts Mm -hmm. in different fields. And like I said, with my husband having a very technical background, Mm -hmm. he started a network called the Technology Assisted Counterpoaching Network in the early 90s. Mm -hmm. And it's a group of people from around the world, Mm -hmm. uh, scientists, engineers, who um, contribute their time and their skills Mm -hmm. to helping develop technologies for wildlife conservation, but primarily for counterpoaching. So I had a pool of the most amazing people from around the world that were willing to help me understand Mm because I didn't have the time because I I was, you know, against Mm -hmm. this time barrier of, well, we've got to do this challenge is this amount of time I have. Mm -hmm. I can't do it myself. So then I reached out to Mm -hmm. people around the world that 
had the skill sets of being able to develop a drone and understood AI, but at the same time cared and wanted to be part of something greater. Mm -hmm. So I had over 150 teams that were competing in the challenge, and I was able to review design concepts and have a better understanding of drones, types of drones, and from around the world, like, you know, how where people were in their understanding of artificial intelligence. Right. So when we when I started, I mean, it was very different in 2013 to where we are now. Like mm-hmm. at that time, people thought I was crazy. Right. <laughs> For very <laughs> nascent. And even the computing power wasn't exactly. there. Exactly. Mm-hmm. But when you look at how small computers have become like mm-hmm. something and cheaper too, mm-hmm. um, something as small as a, a, a Raspberry Pi or a Raspberry Pi Zero, Jetson board, all of those mm-hmm. are tiny little computers but have the computing power to process information. Right. Um, so we started looking at embedded systems from that perspective. How can I take this small computer, put it onto my drone because I'm very limited in the weight. Mm-hmm. So exactly. I had a lot of other challenges that I think most people getting started in a field might not. I mean, one thing was drone. Mm-hmm. What type of drone? You know, I need that endurance because if I'm flying in Kruger National Park in Africa, I, I've got 400 miles to cover. Mm-hmm. Well, how big does that aircraft have to be? What type of sensors do I have to have? So it's learning the hardware. It's learning the capabilities of what that can do. And then bringing it all together and then allowing the computer to be able to process information from a thermal camera, from a visible band camera, uh, from infrared. So a variety of different sensors and all that information coming in, mm-hmm. um, no human was going to be able to do the flight, the mm-hmm. processing all at the same time. So right. I understood from a very early point how important artificial intelligence was for what I was doing. But I've seen how it's evolved and it's more accepted. I know there was there there were fears of drones when I got started, mm-hmm. but there there's also the fear of AI. But mm-hmm. I think you know any new technology always has some people that are totally for it and on the leading edge of pushing it forward and showing the positive uses of that technology. And then you have people that are going to be lagging behind and they'll be scared. But then once everybody else is doing it, it's like, oh, wow, this is so much better. I could do my work better. I'm not losing my job. I'm actually able to do more of my job and do it more efficiently and faster and more accurately as well. And that was kind of my goal is how can I make this process much more efficient, um, faster, mm-hmm. but also cheaper for the people in the field that are there seven days a week uh, right. in the heat, in the cold, in the rain, in the snow, whatever the temperatures are. These guys are mm-hmm. working there. Some of them are giving their life to mm-hmm. help protect these animals. So there were there were several different goals, but it was it was creating the awareness for the problem and then using technology to create a system that did not exist. Mm -hmm. Yes, drones have been around. And yes, the AI um, idea had been around, but coming together was not something that existed. I call it the convergence of emerging technologies. Exactly. And it becomes like this emerging technologies on steroids, right? Taking it to the next level. So that's very interesting. Talk to me a little bit more about the foundation and and what are some of its objectives and how you're using technology to achieve those goals. So very quickly, I learned that... um, Education was a critical part of what I did, because Mm -hmm. if I just hand a drone, a new technology to someone that doesn't know anything about it, Mm -hmm. 
it's not going to last too long. Right. They'll break in the field and they'll just sit on a shelf. There goes whether it's, you know, $2,000, 5000 or $500,000 worth of equipment. Mm-hmm. Nobody's there that's going to be able to fix it. So I understood very quickly that one of the things I needed to do was um, develop a program that allowed people in the field to be able to fix what they were working with. Mm-hmm. So um, after the Wildlife Challenge, I started um, workshops where I would teach how to build a drone. Mm-hmm. And then that kind of grew from a local to uh, local perspective of students, parents, and a variety of different people learning to build a drone in a four-day workshop. So they're literally building it from scratch. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they are programming it and f- learning how to fly it. But the goal was to teach them that this is the beginning of what mm-hmm. you're doing. Mm-hmm. The goal is to take this and then create your own application. And this is what we do. You know, we use drones uh, with artificial intelligence. At first, it was all almost like a foreign concept. Mm-hmm. What do you mean? You 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 process data on board the aircraft and. And then because when I, you have to do it in real time, you right? Can't afford the exactly. latency, exactly. So mm-hmm. I think you know once they started seeing some of my um, test drones, which had a computer on board integrated with it, and watching some of the video of the processing of real time, I think you know all of a sudden it's like oh, we get it. You know this makes sense. That's why do we have to wait to have all this data processed later on? So I think you know from that I grew to I wanted to get to more students, and that was a challenge that I I had because I couldn't do it all myself. So I started a program for teachers. Mm -hmm. So that's the Teachers Take Flight Workshop. We started about four years ago. This is going to be our fourth year doing the program where I have teachers and professors from different universities that can take our workshop and then go back and build or create a program at their universities or their schools, which is not just about drones. It's about an application. How are you going to take this basic model of a drone, Mm -hmm. customize it, Mm -hmm. and put self-awareness in it with Mm -hmm. a computer, Mm -hmm. allow it to think for itself and evolve with time Mm -hmm. um, to solve a real-world problem. Because I think, you know, with the whole STEM movement in, in... in schools as well, especially, they, there's a, a lot of encouragement to try to do project-based learning. Mm-hmm. So I think what we created is an excellent blend of science, technology, engineering, math to be able to um, solve a real problem with. So we either allow the teachers to join in on, with one of our conservation projects or counter-approaching projects, or they could you know, come up with their own project that they want their students to do. Um, and another thing after the Wildlife Challenge I learned was Working with rangers who had limited to no power or any kind of decision-making abilities, um, it was very hard to come up with a system that would be the most optimal system for that problem that we were trying to solve. So I created another program called the Fly for Conservation program. And then that's where we work with researchers and biologists and conservationists, and I teach them how to build a drone. And then they um, collect data. Mm-hmm. When they collect that data, we can then take that data and develop the algorithms that are needed to allow us to do automatic detection. So we have a program for detecting sea turtles, a sea turtle tracks, and identifying the species of those tracks. Um, we just uh, came back from Brazil, and I did a project there where we're working in a protected area. But the project for that is focused on tree identification. So we we we've 
created a model where we could detect two different species, the jelly palm and the broti palm. And then that will be used by the locals in Brazil to be able to have a better understanding of their environment, what, where these trees are that they use as well, and then um, come up with an agroforest concept where we can have the locals being able to live in harmony and in balance with the environment that they're within. So our projects have kind of um, have expanded from just my yeah, first project it's, it's, to it's a wonderful variety. to cover a variety of geographical areas as well. So tell me what about some of the trends that you're observing in the world of artificial intelligence. I know you said way back in 2013, I'm sure we didn't have the type of uh, models that we have in machine learning today, and the, as well as a lot of out-of-box tools. So what are some of the exciting trends in AI that you that really pump you up right now? So I think, you know, one of the biggest changes has been the fact that you're not literally writing code anymore, right? Mm-hmm. Now you have deep learning, right. which is amazingly just exceptional way of being able to just create images, label your images, put it through a training set, and then voila, the computer does it for you, mm-hmm. right? You know, all that extra coding. I don't, I, I'm not a coder. I don't do coding. But I can I can understand the concept and I Correct. can see how easy it's become. And mm-hmm. one of the models that we use, which, which, which we love, has worked really well for us is called YOLO. Mm-hmm. You only look once. It is a deep learning uh, neural network based off of TensorFlow mm-hmm. um, by a guy that uh, was at the University of Washington. And um, the reason why it works great for us is because it processes information in real time. A lot of the models we were originally started in 2013 were very slow. I mean, there was like a lag time of a minute, two minutes, mm-hmm, six mm-hmm. minutes, you know, 10 minutes sometimes even. And then the, the processing power wasn't there. But with YOLO, I mean, you could process it on a Raspberry Pi. So it's very efficient in, in its ability, but more importantly, it's real time. Mm-hmm. And that's what we were looking with. So um, pretty much all the, the different models that we're working with, whether it's with the trees or the sea turtles or snow leopards or uh, situations in Africa for poachers, it's all focused now on being able to process it in real time. And one of the best tools or um, deep learning neural network for us is YOLO. Wonderful, wonderful. So talk to me a little bit more about the foundation. I'm sure you have some hurdles because when you're working in different countries, you obviously have to go through their local agencies and governments. So how do you um, personally actually overcome some of those challenges and barriers? I find really good partners. (laughs) (laughs) Wonderful. I love it. (laughs) That's really, honestly, the key is to have a strong partner in the country you're working because they're your best advocate. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know the country. I don't know the culture. But if I know somebody that cares as much as I care about what we're trying to accomplish, that person is going to put in the same amount of time and effort to get things done. Like, for example, going to Brazil, um, our partner was WWF. But it's a one, one person in particular, Felipe, who I was working with. And we started talking like maybe three or four years ago. And he wasn't even with WWF Brazil at the time. He was with a totally different uh company in a small little island off the coast of Africa. But then he ended up at, back in Brazil. And he's like, Leah, you know, we've got this opportunity for this innovation fund that we can fill out. I mean, we hadn't talked in a year. And he's like, let's let's do this together. Can you come to Brazil and do a workshop? And I'm like, 
yeah, let's make it happen. A week later, um, we submitted the proposal, and a month later, he's like, Leah, it's happened. They they accepted our proposal out of the other ones because it was the most innovative idea of what we were trying to do. So he helped with all the logistics on the ground. He found all the local people there. He did all the logistics we needed in Brazil. All we needed to do was get the equipment there and teach when we were there. But I think the key is to have really good partners because Mm -hmm. now he's going to have to be in charge of the drones that are there and the people that will use those drones to collect the data. Because if we don't have the data, we can't actually enhance and improve the algorithms Mm -hmm. that we have. Same thing in Mexico, our partners, Pernatura and Merida University. So, um, they have a drone there, so now it's turtle season. So they're they're using the drone to collect sea turtle tracks, and they'll collect additional um, data, which will allow us to improve and build upon the algorithms that we already have been looking at, from you know turtle detecting sea turtle tracks and determining the species to being able to figure out what species we see in the ocean as well. And then that project can be overlapped with Malaysia, for example, where we have a partner there for sea turtles, but it's counter poaching. They have problems where people will trap the turtles in a um, pen in the ocean. And the best way to find those is with a drone. And especially if the drone is equipped with AI, first it's going to scan and it's going to find the pen. Once it finds the pen, then it's going to scan within that pen and be able to look and say, oh, I see sea turtles. And then if we can have enough data, we can say, oh, that's a leatherback or that's, you know, a green turtle. And now I can count all of that. And now I can tell you this pen here is holding 21 leatherback turtles and 15 green turtles or whatever the number is. So we can continue improving our AI capabilities as we collect more data. So another thing that I learned very quickly was the fact that, um, I couldn't depend on our team having to go somewhere to collect the data. Mm-hmm. We needed somebody on the ground. They can mm-hmm. collect data at different times, different intervals. Um, and for us, if I go somewhere, maybe I could be there for a week or two weeks, but that's really the maximum amount of time that I would be able to spend. And that's such limited data. Mm-hmm. For example, with sea turtles, I mean, you know, there's seven different species. If I go to one place and collect data, I may only be able to have data on one species, and it'll be limited to that time period as well. So this, the reason why now we do our Fly for Conservation workshops in the countries where our partners are is because then we can have them collect the data, send it back to us, and we can continue to enhance and improve the AI capabilities. Wonderful. Um, So last of all, I would love to know from you for some good advice for those that are trying to navigate the world of AI. Um, And these range from students to people who are in the mid-level in their careers. Um, So what sort of jobs should they be looking for and any tips about how to enhance their skill set to work on AI projects? This might sound a little strange, but I don't believe in a job. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The reason why is because I think, you know, if you're looking for a job, then you're just 
looking to get paid. But if you're looking to make a difference, then I think you will find more jobs. The reason why is because you're going to work towards improving your skills. And a lot of people forget, you know, when you're in college and you're going to graduate, jobs are not just going to be waiting. You have to make the effort. So I work with a lot of different interns from all over the world. And one of the best things is that they inter- that internship allows them to have the opportunity to get exposed and involved with a project. So the best advice I would give to any, whether you're a student or even, you know, what somebody in a totally different career is to volunteer for an organization that is working with AI. Um, Expose yourself to the type of things you care about and how is AI being applied to that? And if it's not, maybe you could find a way. That's what I did. You know, I created my own path. I didn't follow somebody else's path on it. So I think, you know, it's either you can find a company that's already doing what you care about and they're using AI or you find a problem you care to solve and find a solution for it, which could require AI or some form of deep learning for it as well. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Alia. It was wonderful talking to you. And I don't see often many people working on AI for social good, which you're doing a great job for conserving the wildlife population. So kudos to you and your team. Until next time, goodbye, everyone. Thanks again. Thank you for tuning in to The Workforce Show. This interview and others can be found at WERA.FM or at careercentralonline.com. Thank you for listening. Until the next time.